Greetings in the Lord Jesus. Welcome to everyone, especially to you visitors. I don't know if y'all got welcomed yet or not, but uh, Joe and Donna, welcome back, and all your family. <coughs> May look like we just did a little switch this morning. It's not quite that simple. Uh, Delmar Troyer is preaching at uh, McDowell this morning where I was supposed to be. Uh, Claire had called me about Okay, he was hunting someone to go to Bethany, and he wanted Levi's number, so uh, he also told me Delmer was going to be there, so I called Delmer and asked him to preach there, and decided to stay here, and I hear Levi is at Bethany this morning, and uh, Brother David Heatwell called me and said, well, my wife's about ready to have a baby any time, we'd be just as glad not to drive to Strasburg, so I'm preaching for him today. So it was kind of a long story to get there. And actually, I was kind of glad because I had a sermon I wanted to preach. And, and then I thought, well, but it's kind of like other sermons I've preached here more recently and got to looking for something else and looking for something else. I came across one here I felt like preaching. So it's 29 years old. My notes are 29 years old. I haven't preached off paper this size for a long time. Uh, <clears throat> And Mark's probably have heard it before because I've reached it at Raleigh back in hmm, March of 1992. Okay. <laughs> I don't think I've ever preached from this old of notes. I usually retype them, but I didn't do that on purpose, partly because I just wanted them like they were. If I uh, retype them, I usually redo things and say it the way I'd say it now, and I just kind of preferred to leave it like it was. So I still won't say it like I did back then. So the title is, and by the way, I think this was probably a, an assigned sermon given to me at Mount Olive one evening way back in 1990. So anyway, can't be positive anymore, but I'm pretty sure. The title is Remove Not the Ancient Landmark. comes from Proverbs 22. Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. A landmark for them was a boundary a boundary marker, a separator. So the church has been around 2,000 years almost. There are characteristics by which the true church is known. I'm thinking about those this morning, the landmarks, the boundaries. What characterizes the church? Of course, and this is a little bit got some history in it along the way. I'm going to quote some early Anabaptist writers along the way. Through history, the church fell away. And put church in quotation marks if you want. The uh, Constantine came along, the Emperor Constantine, and adopted the church as the Roman empires. And eventually you had the Roman Catholic Church and all of that. Uh, lost some of those landmarks. There were always true Christians who kept them. We don't always find them very easily in history because, uh, well, because the, the other church kind of wiped them out when they could and wiped out their writings when they could. And so it's a little hard to find them in history always. But you come up to Reformation times and Martin Luther or Zwingli, people like that, began working for reform. They began new churches, Protestant churches, we call them now. They were men who were converted. 
probably. But I think they were from what we can read about them. I'm not sure they stayed converted always. You read about Martin Luther in his later life, and you think, can this man be a Christian? The way he talked and acted? Well, I don't know. I'm not going to judge that. But anyway. And there were true Christians who looked to those men and said, here, finally, we've got somebody that's preaching the Bible. And they generally ended up getting disappointed. They kept on insisting on a state church. They seemed to be afraid to suffer persecution to do what was right. And so, in 1525, there was that small group of believers that began what we call the Anabaptists. They set up that church within the ancient Latin marks again. And we are their spiritual heirs. And so I want to look at the landmarks a little bit. I want to look at the scriptural basis for the landmarks. We'll uh, quote a couple of Anabaptists along the way, their practice, and think about why we are where we are. The challenges, these aren't all of them, these are some of them, the landmarks. What set the Anabaptists apart in their day? Does it still set us apart today? It should. So, what will set us apart today is maybe what I ought to ask. Are we still keeping them? Will we keep them? And I think I have five. The first is obedience to the scriptures. Pretty simple. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church in those times claimed to have the scripture, claimed to obey it. They based a lot of what they did on tradition and and even feared the scriptures back in along about the 1200s. They, uh, there was a council down in southern France, a Roman Catholic council, that forbade ordinary people to read the scripture. That was dangerous. Ordinary people couldn't read the scripture and interpret it properly, they said. So the reformers, Luther and Zwingli, others, help put the scripture into people's hands. Well, there were other people that did it. We can't go into all the history right now. Martin Luther talked about sola scripture, scripture alone, and claimed to follow it. But when it came right down to it, he wasn't willing to go all the way. He talked once about, he talked for, wrote once about, he would like to start this true church inside of his larger church where people would actually be real Christians, but he gave that up too. It wouldn't work. It didn't work. The Anabaptists read the Bible, they obeyed the Bible, they found that it worked. And because they obeyed, they were persecuted, just like all those other Christians ahead of them who tried to do that. And because they did, we'll use them as, call them landmark holders, our fathers who set up these landmarks, our spiritual forefathers, let's put it that way. All right, and so the second one, they insisted on true conversion. True conversion with evidence. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Romans 12.1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. 
Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let every one, every man that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. True conversion with evidence. Lives that are changed. Well, okay, so the Roman Catholic Church in that time, it was basically a works religion. You were baptized, you confessed, you did penance, you said your Hail Marys, you did your Paternosters, our fathers, you did what was necessary. Everyone in the state was a member by birth. Well, no, not by birth, by baptism after birth. Most people lived in sin and didn't care anyway. As long as you were in grace, you'd done, you'd been baptized, you went to confession now and then, you did what the church asked, you were okay. The reformers came along, started a new church. They still baptized babies, you still became a member that way. What made a, an area Roman Catholic or Protestant was what the ruler decided. He could decide, I'm going to be Protestant now and order the priests to become Protestant, and they did, or else. And same with the people. And so, after the Reformation, I've been trying to write a church history, and I knew that, that after the Reformation, in that first hundred years or so in Europe, was a messy time, but I, I, trying to write this church history made me realize just how messy it was. They, just a lot of fighting between the Catholics and the Protestants. And that was the whole thing. <laughs> They both were 100% right, and they fought, <laughs> they fought for the right, and so naturally you had lots of war. And the Anabaptists got stuck in the middle, by the way. Luther, the Lutherans, in fact, got to be worse than the Catholics in, the way, in their lifestyle. They took Christian liberty that he preached too far, and Luther even said our people are worse than the Catholics in the way they live sometimes. There was no holiness of life in the state churches, and the Anabaptists point that out, pointed it out. It got them into trouble, which was normal. They insisted on holiness of life, a newness of living, the change of life that comes when you start obeying God. Here I'll read you a quote or two. <clears throat> All right, there was a debate in 1532. This was between Swiss Brethren and Reformed. The spokesman for the Brethren said, In the early church, only those were received as members who were converted through repentance to newness of life. The true church is conformed to the nature of Christ. Another debate in 1538, the Brethren said, Well, here was one brother saying this, while yet in the national church, we obtained much instruction from the writings of Luther, Zwingli, and others concerning the mass and other papal ceremonies, that they were vain. Yet we recognized a great lack regards, regarding repentance, conversion, and the true Christian life. Upon these things, my mind was bent. I waited and hoped for a year or two, since the minister had much to say about amendment of life, of giving to the poor, loving one another, and abstaining from evil. But I could not close my eyes to the fact that the doctrine which was preached and which was based on the word of God was not carried out. No beginning was made toward true Christian living. True repentance and Christian love were not in evidence. Changes were made only as concerned external things. 
This gave me occasion to inquire further into these matters. When God sent his messengers, Conrad Grebel and others, with whom I conferred about the fundamental teachings of the apostles and the Christian life and practice, I found them men who had surrendered themselves to the doctrine of Christ. With their assistance, we established a congregation in which repentance was in evidence by the newness of life in Christ. In evidence. They wanted to see life results. And that resulted in a believer's church, which maybe could be a separate point, but I just included it here as part of this one. The state churches included everybody. The Anabaptists said only the truly converted, only those whose lives give evidence. They must prove it. They didn't baptize people by force. They didn't baptize babies. They baptized those who voluntarily chose to commit themselves to Christ. And for them, that meant persecution. Along with that, they practiced church discipline when a person gave evidence of leaving the faith, no longer obeying Christ, they also removed him from the church. Well, here's another quote. This one from Menno Simons. Christ's church consists of the chosen of God, his saints and beloved, who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, who are born of God and led by Christ's Spirit, who are in Christ and Christ in them, who hear and believe his word, live in their weakness according to his commandments, and in patience and meekness follow in his footsteps. The church is a body of believers living new lives together. Well, our our situation is not really all that different from theirs in some ways. Many people around us are, quote, Christian, but their lives don't show evidence of a changed life. And if we insist on that real outward evidence, they start calling us legalists and works religion people and things like that. Same thing that happened back there. Well, they might not have called them legalists then, but they called them uh, works Christians, where the Anabaptists called the Roman Catholics works Christians. But anyway, <clears throat> don't have time to go into all that. Well, what about this ancient landmark? Does it still stand? Do we still require real evidence of a changed life? Well, sure. Drunkard gets converted, we expect him to change, right? Yes, we do. But what about parents? What about our children growing up in our homes? Do we expect a changed life when they are converted? Is membership still voluntary? I've known Mennonite churches where it seemed like the parents, once the children start getting to a certain age, they sort of start nudging them toward baptism. We're looking for true conversion, where they come to Jesus Christ because they know they're sinners, not because it's time to get baptized, not because it's time to join the church. How about believer's baptism? That comes in the same category. Let's don't push our very young children into church membership and baptism. Church membership doesn't save anyone. Baptism doesn't save anyone has to be a relationship with the Lord Jesus. Yes, we can encourage our children as they grow to, to know him and to love him. We could also encourage them that they are safe in Jesus Christ until the time that he calls them. 
do our young people experience true conversion or you know, is it when revival time comes around, well, they know their parents would like them to do something and so they do and then they just go on living like they were before. They weren't bad to start with. After all, they grew up in a Christian home. But I'm simply saying, if true conversion happens, there will be a change. We see it. We see it yet today. We've seen it in some of these young men and ladies here, too, in the last however long it's been now, number of months. When people come to the Lord, it's going to change the way they relate to others. It's going to bring a real change of life. You're going to see a desire to grow in Christ, a desire to read the Word of God which is actually the sermon I was looking for when I found this one. I was going to preach about the need to read the Word of God. But anyway, save that for another time. Eva and I were <clears throat> talking this morning and saying, yeah, I just don't get to preach all the sermons I'd like to preach anymore. Sorry. There's going to be a commitment when you come to the Lord Jesus that wasn't there before. If you're a new creature... If they're new creatures, it's going to show in some way or other. It's going to be obvious. Old things passed away, all things become new. And we do a disservice, we harm the church if we bring our children to be baptized and they are not truly converted and their lives are not changed. And so we dare not lose this ancient landmark. We live in a world of easy believism where you can just sort of believe and go on living like you want. It'll ruin the church if we live that way. Well, another ancient landmark. We call it nonconformity to the world. So now we're new creatures, sons of the living God. We will be different from, we will be separated from this evil world. And be not conformed to the world, but be ye transformed. Be not poured into the same mold, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, Paul wrote. Peter said, don't fashion yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. Don't fashion yourselves. Don't put your lives together based on the same thing as people out there, the world. Fashion yourselves rather after the Lord Jesus. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father. And I lost the rest of the verses. should be able to quote them. But anyway, I don't have them written down here. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Gimme, gimme. Look at me. I want to be in control. Those kind of things. It's all about self. And nonconformity is all about, <laughs> I'm living for others. Something has happened to me and makes me different. <laughs> Let me give you a couple quotes. This is from Menno Simons on separation. The whole evangelical scriptures teach that Christ's church was and must be a people separated from the world in doctrine, life, and worship. Uh, here's from another debate. The Swiss Brethren said the true church is separated from the world as in, and is conformed to the nature of Christ. If the church is yet one with the world, we cannot recognize it as the true church. And it needs to be practical. Here's a quote from an enemy of the Brethren. This is uh, Bullinger. He was a reformer in Zurich after Zwingli. 
Bolinger wrote concerning the early Swiss brethren, they led their lives under a semblance, and this was an enemy, by the way, <laughs> they led their lives under a semblance, he called it, of quite spiritual conduct and reproved sharply covetousness, pride, profanity, the frivolous, talk, frivolous talking and inordinate life of the world. In another place, he said, they reproved earnestly all vain display, all intemperance in eating and drinking, all profanity and other sin. He states further that they had regulations in regard to clothing and that they rejected all wearing of costly clothing and ornaments. Their walk and conversation, he observes, were of a serious turn and they were very outspoken in their testimony against the sensuality and unscrupulousness of the world. Johannes Kessler was another reformer. He said their life was irreproachable. They shunned costly clothing. Their walk and conversation was quite humble. Does this landmark still stand in our church? Does it stand in your life? Do our lives show that our goals are otherworldly? Or are we battering, patterning our thinking and our actions after worldly values. Here's a test you can take. Make a list of the things that are most important to you. And be honest. I mean, at the top we would probably put our own salvation, the relationship with Christ, our family, our church, things like that. And maybe there are some other things that ought to be there if we study our what we actually do with our time that we might not think of right away. What's most important in my life? And then take a look at your life and say, do I prove it by what I do? Somebody in the Sunday school class, I believe it was Brother Dave, said talk comes cheap. And it does. We can say anything. Do we prove it by the clothes we wear? Yeah, we talk about that now and then. The cars we drive, the things we spend our money for, things we like to have, our selfish desires, well, we don't have them, do we? Our ambitions, have we put those to death? Are we truly living as citizens of another country? Our attitudes, things we get angry at, the grudges we hold, the way we judge others, our hatred, attitudes toward money. Our thoughts, do we keep them pure? Our thoughts about others, are they loving? Do they fit in Philippians 4.8 we heard this morning? Our thoughts about the things that go on around us, the events around us that maybe affect us adversely and the people. What about our decisions? What do we base decisions on anyway? The reasons we do what we do Where we go or don't go, the way we respect or don't respect authorities, the way we treat our families, the clothes we wear. Do we aim to be humble, not to attract attention to ourselves? See, the landmark becomes uncertain when we start doing those things that kind of put me at the center and start drawing attention to me. 
cars and homes, again, should give evidence that uh, we care about some other values than worldly values. Our lives must give evidence that we're marching to a different drummer. That's what separation is all about, because we are conformed to Jesus Christ and we're going after him with all our hearts. We're not going to live like other people live. Does this ancient landmark still stand in your life? Well, another one, non-resistance, we call it. As I already said, the Roman Catholics and the Protestants in that day, they were fighting religious wars all over the place. Terrible suffering, terrible, terrible for the whole part of, I mean, that whole central part of Europe was just one big mess people dying left and right and of course you get things like the plague and cholera and, and everything that comes along with warfare in there well of course they occasionally had to persecute an Anabaptist or somebody else that didn't disagree with them uh, so that wasn't exactly non-resistant either even putting them to death you have heard that it hath been said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth but I say unto you that you resist not evil but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek turn to him the other also and if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat let him have thy cloak also and whosoever shall compel thee to go to mile go with him twain give to him that asketh of thee and from him that would borrow thee turn thou not away the Anabaptists took that seriously Conrad Grebel wrote in 1524, True Christians use neither the worldly sword nor engage in war, since among them taking human life has ceased entirely, for we are no longer under the old covenant. The gospel and those who accept it are not to be protected with the sword, neither should they thus protect themselves. Pilgrim Marpeck in 1544 said, All bodily, worldly, carnal, earthly fighting, conflicts, and wars are annulled and abolished among them. So it's not just war, it's any carnal, that means selfish, self-centered fighting, arguing thoughts about such things, perhaps even, are annulled and abolished among them. Menno Simons wrote, the regenerated do not go to war, nor engage in strife. They are the children of peace, who have beaten their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and know of no war. Well, this principle includes not just non-resistance, and this is one thing I like about some of the older Mennonite books that I remember reading years ago. They you hardly ever saw non-resistance by itself in a title. It was non-resistance and love. If you keep reading where I left off, you have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. It's not enough to be non-resistant. It's got to be based on love. And if you don't act in love, then you're not unresistant the way you ought to be yet. Doing good to your enemy, praying for them. Like Dirk Willems, 
most of us know the story, you know, running from the thief catcher and he went across the frozen creek or pond or whatever and he made it and the thief catcher fell in. He went back and pulled him out and went to the stake because of it. Does this landmark still stand in us? Well, of course, we don't participate in war. Well, we don't have to anymore, do we? It's all volunteer. We don't take people to court. If someone were to hit us, we wouldn't hit him back. Or would we? That's a very, very natural reaction. What would keep you from it? Would take. You know, if you haven't given it any thought lately, it's just very likely your <clears throat> reflexes might step in and, and begin to do it. It's something we need to think about. We will not retaliate. We will respond in love. And it takes thought and planning sometimes to do that. How is our love? Can we pray? Father, forgive that person that just took advantage of me. Forgive that person that just went off with my $120. Forgive. <laughs> hmm, okay. Forgive that person that just told somebody else something about me and it wasn't true. And maybe even let it go without having to go back and make sure they get it fixed and straightened up. Can we refrain even from feeling like getting revenge? Can we choose we're going to love this person and we're not going to go there? Now, it may be a little bit of a struggle, but I think we can with the Lord's help. Can we actually love that person by doing something good for them. Oh, you read about it in the story papers, you know, you, the, the children, they, they teach them to, to make friends with that enemy by giving them a candy bar or something. <clears throat> Good idea. It might take a little more for us adults. But the principle's right. Pray for them. Want the best for them? Do something good for them. Show you love them. From the heart. And so non-resistance and love is a lot more than just non-participation in war. It's actively loving from the heart. Those people that don't deserve it. Those people that we naturally would want to strike back at in some way. Non-participation in strife is a natural result of Christ-likeness, Christ-like attitudes. Maybe we should call it a spiritual result of Christ-like attitudes. But it will follow if we are following Christ. Does this landmark still stand in you? Well, another one, brotherly love, we call it sometimes. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. That's John 13, 34 or so. 
H.S. Bender wrote, this was understood to mean not just the expression of pious sentiments, but the actual practice of sharing possessions to meet the needs of others. 1 John 3.17 and 18, but whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother hath need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue only doesn't say that but that's the point but in deed and in truth interesting verse whoso hath this world's good and I've said it before but I'll say it again that word good is the exact same word that talks about the widow who put her whole living into the offering living Whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him. Well, but he doesn't deserve it. Doesn't say so. <laughs> okay. We could find all kinds of reasons to say, why obey the Lord Jesus? And that's basically what set the Anabaptists apart from all the other groups. And that's where I started a while ago, obedience to the scriptures. When, the, when God says, they believed it. And we need to struggle a little sometimes with that. At least I have had to. Or you could go to James chapter 2, where it talks about faith and works. And you see... The brother who has a need and you say to him, God bless you, brother, be warmed and filled and send him on his way. Hans Leopold, a Swiss brother and martyr of 1528, said of the brethren, if they know of anyone who is in need, whether or not he's a member of their church, they believe it their duty out of love to God to render him help and aid. One of the questions addressed by the Swiss Brethren to applicants for baptism was, and this is, I'm sure it wasn't always, but at least in, in some cases, whether they consecrated themselves and all their temporal possessions to the service of God and his people. A Protestant in Strasbourg, visitor at a Swiss Brethren baptismal service in that city in 1557, reported that a question addressed to applicants for baptism was, whether they, if necessity required it, would devote all their possessions to the service of the brotherhood and would not fail any member that is in need if they were able to render aid. Heinrich Bullinger, again, a bitter enemy of the brethren states, they teach that every good Christian is under duty before God from motives of love to use, if need be, all his possessions to supply the necessities of life to any of the brethren who are in need. That's getting pretty close to the quick. All my possessions to help my brother? I need them. Well, that's true. I do need some of them. Some of them I just want, I guess. <laughs> Barnabas sold a piece of land. 
gave the proceeds to the church. Must have been an extra piece. Probably wasn't too important anyway, right? What about this landmark? Does it still stand? Well, sure. We have a Brotherhood Aid offering every first Monday of first Sunday of the month. And yes, it's true. We Mennonites, we've sort of by this time institutionalized this business of helping each other with money. And that's not all wrong. I think perhaps it may have sort of a deadening effect on the blessing and maybe we don't get the blessing like we should that way quite as much where it's just sort of money's needed and we give it and it will go to where it's needed. Just put it in the offering plate. The brotherly love that's supposed to make it happen. We need to remind ourselves of that. Of course every once in a while we have an extra special offering and don't forget that one by the way this evening. And by the way, 1990, whatever it was, I have a note here I'd written in on my notes, probably 92. They were asking $50 per member for Brotherhood Aid. So anyway, y'all want to compare that to where we are now? Just call that inflation. Okay. But do we give it in brotherly love? What's what's pushing us to give in that offering, and and, and how do we feel about it? I, I always remember something I read somewhere. You, you know, when we put that money in there, are we inwardly singing? It gives us inward pain when we asunder part. You know, uh, <laughs> or, or is it something we do cheerfully and gladly? We ought to love to give. We ought to love to give. Brotherly love. Well, the kiss of charity, that kind of goes along with this too. We uh, do that as an expression of our love toward each other. It's really just an outward expression, a symbol, I guess we could call it a landmark, of uh, what's supposed to be on the inside. Is it a heart reality? Sometimes we talk about the brotherly address. How many of you know what I mean when I talk about the brotherly address? Okay, that's when we exercise Matthew 18, the middle part of it, uh, and go talk to someone about a, something, a sin that they've sinned against us, or maybe a problem we see in their life. We call that the brotherly address. I'm not sure when it got that name, but anyway, are we willing to love that much? I mean, that's a scary business. People get upset. They shouldn't. Maybe... That's part of our lack of love, too, and we can't have somebody come to us without getting upset. It's a little bit difficult, I understand. <laughs> I know what it's like to have somebody come to you with a, a concern, come to me with a concern, and, <clears throat> and when I think that's coming, I usually steal myself up and <clears throat> gulp a little and get ready because I'm determined I'm not going to snap at them and I'm not going to bite their head off. And yes, you can go ahead and come and I won't bite your head off. I won't promise that I'm going to work real hard <laughs> to respond properly. I will work that way. But it takes effort. I know it. But that's part of loving the brotherhood too. 
is dealing with each other in love. One last landmark. The Anabaptists knew why they did what they did. They knew why they had these practices, and we need to too. If they are truly expressions of inner realities, we will know why we're doing them. And we'll be ready to tell others why we do them. And if you're not, you can't tell somebody why you're non-resistant. You can't tell somebody why you're non-conformed. If you can't tell somebody any of these others, you got some studying to do. Find out. Because you ought to know. You ought to love the Lord so much that uh, you're in this book so much that you know why. And it happened again and again and again where, you know, these educated monks or priests would come in and question Anabaptists, and the Anabaptists would put them to shame. Maybe it was just the, you know, the serving girl or whatever. But they knew the scriptures better than their persecutors. And sometimes their persecutors would say things like, within a week after they turn out a Baptist, they know how to read and they've been reading the Bible. They taught them to read. They taught them to get into the book. They taught them even to read so they could read the book. Well, how are we doing? Anyway, I'm getting on this sermon after all. Still got a minute or two. Okay. <laughs> we ought to know why we have the practices we have. I mean, Maybe I had an advantage. I didn't grow up in a conservative church. I came in, and I decided I wasn't coming in here until I knew what was going on and why I was going to do what I did. And uh, sometimes when we're just growing up in a conservative church, I think we just sort of don't bother. Well, you're soon going to leave, or if you don't, your children will. So you better find out, and you better start teaching it. It's just what I've got to say. Okay. So the ancient landmarks, they do still stand. They mark the boundaries of a different way, God's way. The devil's working hard to knock them down. He's out there getting ready to move them, trying to. And in many churches that call themselves Anabaptists that share our heritage with those Anabaptists back there, they've been long going. Oh, they still emphasize maybe the inner life some. On the other hand, there's a good many churches that share that heritage that have kept some outward landmarks and they've just become piles of stone out there on the border. They don't mean anything because the inner reality has been lost too. It takes both. They need, we need the landmarks. But we need them because they mean something, because they are boundaries, they are limit, they are marking the boundaries of something real on the inside. Because if it's just an empty shell, that'll soon be going too, and you'll have an empty shell that looks like a Mennonite filled with wickedness. And there are those. If we let them go away, if we remove them, we'll just be another voice in an already confused world 
saying something else that isn't helpful to anyone. So we need to keep them. We need to display them. We need to know why we have them. We need to make sure we're hanging on to God's landmarks. Let's have a song.